Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I will tell you that I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning as we continue with our Bible study called Love Letter from God. We're also reading John 3.16, which is our key verse for the entire study. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, in the NLT says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the heart of of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead among, along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord Jesus. Articulate the Father's heart through my voice and let the Holy Spirit breathe new life to us, opening our ears to hear the message of God. Amen. I have a lot of favorite passages in Scripture, and there are several in Ephesians, but this one is one that I have, uh, I have really loved for a long time. And it's one that reminds us that our good works and our efforts are not the catalyst for salvation, but rather they are the output that comes from the input of God's grace. What we do is because God's grace by the power of the Holy Spirit has transformed us from what we were, from the ways in which we lived selfishly, to something new, a masterpiece that reflects all of who God is in, in us, each of us individually and all of us as the church collectively. I read about the word masterpiece this week because I wanted to understand what it is that the NLT translators were thinking about when they used it. In the NIV, the translators used the word handiwork or craftsmanship. And that is kind of a more literal translation of the Greek, but I think that when the New Living Translation editors were trying to underscore the idea that everything God crafts intentionally becomes a masterpiece, 
They use this word to help us see it more completely. There is an article that I read that was in uh, the Star Tribune, and it talks about the word masterpiece and how that comes together. It says, as one of the world's premier art museums and home to such famed cultural icons as Mona Lisa, the Louvre in Paris ought to have nailed the answer to the simple question, what is a masterpiece? But no, when the museum posed that question to a bunch of its curators a few years ago, they were stymied. It wasn't that they had no answer, but that they had too many. Superlative craftsmanship, extraordinary design, great antiquity, rich materials, purity of form, artistic genius, originality, influence on other artists, all those qualities and more bubbled into the discussion. But the term masterpiece originally came from the Middle Ages when apprentice artisans had to prove their skills by submitting exemplary work for approval by the guild that governed their trade, carving, metalwork, enameling. If the piece demonstrated mastery of the craft, the apprentice would be promoted to master and authorized to train others. But later the meaning evolved under the influence of connoisseurs who might judge art on the distinctiveness of its design or scholars who would concern themselves with the history and authenticity of a piece. So that now, Michael Conforti says that art excuse me, that it, one doesn't have to be educated into an appreciation of an object. It will have universal appeal. And obviously, we sometimes think of things as masterpieces that the art historians wouldn't necessarily consider so. The Mona Lisa is one of them. Everyone thinks of the Mona Lisa as the masterpiece. But really, it wasn't even thought of as a very great work until it was stolen. And then it became of some significant importance. And in the public mind, we've elevated it to the level of masterpiece when others would say there are other works that much more carefully embody what da Vinci was about. Reedy, one of the art historians, said, To me, a masterpiece is something that stands the test of time and is viewed as a masterpiece from generation to generation. It must influence generations of artists and change the way that people look at the medium, be it painting, sculpture, decorative art, or whatever. It must be so original that once you've seen it, you're incredibly influenced by its power. And any artist, artist who goes in that direction is accused of studying under or being in the shadow of the original. And then Karakin said, they crystallize a whole set of artistic and cultural values and are technically brilliant above reproach. I believe in the transformative power of art. And those paintings that move you so much, words fail you. Those are the masterpieces. 
God makes us masterpieces by transforming us. And God isn't interested in making all of us the same thing or using the same characteristics in each of us in the same ways, but instead, God builds in us transformation that makes us stand out as beautifully unique and powerfully attractive to those around us. When you are able to move someone around you to the point that they are speechless, that is the wonder of being a masterpiece of God's design. And that can happen because God changes the things that make us who we are from what they were when they were selfish in us into something better when they are given away. And God does this in two ways. God transforms us each individually, but God also transforms us collectively as we stay together in the church community. God's plan for his masterpiece is not that it would be individual artwork hanging in in places all by itself, but instead that it would come together and work together and be a force to be reckoned with as a united group. That's why God has given each of us different gifts, and God has made each of us differently able to do things in the kingdom. How many of you in the congregation today would like to be pastor of this church tomorrow? Well, that would be a unanimous no, uh, except for me. And that's because I've been given the gifts that make it possible for me to do that. But without all of you, my gifts are worthless. Because I need you to be part of what we're doing in order for this to be a valid effort. On Tuesdays, Joyce comes and helps with the children. And that is something that's important. It keeps me from killing them. Not really. But it's definitely helpful. Because it helps us to work together in that effort. We have a board that serves. Amy takes care of the money and makes sure I don't spend it all. Most of the time. Because she has different gifts than all of us do. These are the things that God does when God builds the masterpiece of the church. He puts us all together in the places where we need to be. And he builds all of us up individually in the strengths and the things that we have to make us better individually so that we can be better collectively, so that we can go out and be who God has made us to be in the world around us. That's what a masterpiece does. It makes everything else better by its very presence. If you've ever been to the Louvre, I haven't. I don't know if anyone here has, but it is a museum that is that has uh, that has so many pieces of art, and they're collected in different places where different things are emphasized. That's <clears throat> how museums do these things. 
they collect different pieces and put them together and then they have little pieces that describe why they're all fit together. That's how God has made the masterpiece of the church. He's put each of us in different little places and he's collectively said, this is why you are together, to impact this place in this way. And that's why we are where we are. And that's why we do what we do. Because we've been called to be something different in the place where we are. And we've been specially called together to do the things that we need to do as a group. But we're all being grown and turned into masterpieces by God individually as well. God has given us the ability to be alive in Christ. He has given us the ability to be different than what we were. I think of, whenever I think about big transformation stories, I always draw into the story of Newton. Newton was a uh, slave trader. He had many ships where he would go and round up slaves in Africa. He would bring them to the United Kingdom, bring them to um, slave markets and auctions, and they would be, um, they were put in his ships in very inhumane ways. People were basically treated as though they were merchandise. So they were stowed in lower levels. And then one day, Newton met Jesus. And when that happened, he stopped all of his slave trading. He sold his ships. He stopped doing the work that had made him very wealthy. And instead, he became an advocate against slavery. And when he did that, he wrote one of the hymns that we love, that even non-Christians know and love, that people sing at funerals, they sing at places where they don't know any other Christian hymns. I've heard it sung at karaoke. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And the reason why Newton was able to write those words is because he knew within the depth of himself how God had transformed him from what he was to what he is. And how the amazing grace of God had done that in his life. He didn't change himself. Instead, God's grace worked into his heart and turned him into a masterpiece for those around him. That is how God is at work. I mentioned at the beginning of this message that I have a couple of favorite passages in Ephesians. And the second one that I have is actually a prayer that Paul says, writes down, That is his prayer for the Ephesians. 
And in this prayer, we find the, the beauty of what we're talking about here. And this actually ties together a few different things. It ties together where our transformation comes from. It ties together the idea that God's love is bigger than we could ever think of. And it underscores the idea that God is able to do more than we could possibly ever, ever come up with on our own. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason... Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul says several things in here. Christ needs to dwell in our hearts. And when Christ dwells in our hearts, we have the glorious riches of strength that come from the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we are rooted and established in love because the reason Christ dwells in us is love. That's what we've been saying from the beginning of this, of this entire study. All of scripture points to the love that God has for us and builds on that over and over and over again in every single story, in every single place. And here it says that Paul wants us to know exactly what that love looks like in every single circumstance. That that love that's so big and so high and so deep and so amazing that we don't even know how to measure it is something that we can experience just because Christ is in us. And we experience it not just alone, but we experience with all of God's people. Not just in this place where we're together, But in any circumstance where we are together with God's people, we can see God's love at work. And then, God is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. The words that come out of our mouths, the thoughts that we think in our heads, Those don't limit God. Those don't change what God is able to do. God is able to do more than we could possibly ever articulate and more than we could possibly ever think of. God is bigger than our doubts, bigger than our fears, 
God is bigger than our striving. And we can turn to God and God is able to change who we are in the hardest moments from what we were to the best that God can imagine. The best that God can make us. That is an amazing gift. And every single time we gather together or we spend time in prayer together or we think about who God is and what God can do, every single time God uses that to transform us just a little bit more. Sometimes God's transformation isn't so immediate as what Newton went through. Sometimes God's transformation is incremental. Sometimes it's a changing of what we want first in small ways, and then it's a changing of what we do in the bigger, in the bigger scheme of things. And God is always at work, and God can make us more than we ever thought possible. If you had asked me 10 years ago, probably, if I would be pastoring a church, I would have laughed in your face. Because there is no way. I couldn't imagine it. But God could. And God did. And look at where we are. That is an amazing gift of the God who does things we don't even expect in ways we can't possibly predict. He makes a way where there is no way. And he changes us from the inside out. Well, as we have been doing every week in this series, I want to remind you of what it looks like to say that the love of God is found in every page of Scripture. So if you would take your blue sheets out and follow along as we read. What does it mean to say God loves us? God loves us now to create us, to form us from the dust, to let us fail, to let us choose our own way over God's, to let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death, to provide a rescue, a way back through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers, to show us Mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. 
to show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. To send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. To see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. To raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like Jesus. To want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. To still let us choose our own destiny. To promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead, and final judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world. He sacrificed his son to turn all of us into his masterpieces. God loves you. God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week most tangibly as we gather at this table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. So come, drink the wine, eat the bread. Know you are loved. God loves you. Go love the world with him. <laughs>